Thank you so much, Pastor Eric. Yes, let's stay standing. We're coming now to John chapter 17, and I'm going to read from the end of verse 33, the end of that chapter, through to verse 5, and then I'm actually going to read also uh, verse uh, 22. You'll find it on page 903 in the Church Bibles. Uh, we're looking at this series on the prayer of Jesus, uh, your assurance, mission, unity, and joy in Christ. And this morning we're looking just at a couple of verses, verses 4 and 5, in the context of the whole. And I particularly want to read verse 22 because there's a theme here that we're picking up that is extremely important throughout this prayer. And it's about glory, and you need to get that, that right. Um, and in order to get that right, you need to hear verse 22 as well. So we're going to read that. And the title I've, I've given uh, for this sermon is Mission Accomplished. And what we need to understand is how... The accomplished mission of Jesus connects to glory, the glory of God, and also our experience of uh, that glory. It's, a, it's a, um, a truth that has been resonating within my mind and heart a lot this week, and um, I'm just praying that God will give me the wisdom, the right words to communicate it to you, because I think if you get it, it will be a, life, a life-changing uh, insight. So John chapter 16, beginning at verse 33, let's hear God's word. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So that's the end of this great sermon, this triumphant sermon. I've overcome the world. And what he wants now is for us to get that and experience that and have that in our mind and our heart. And so he prays to that end, your assurance, mission, unity, and joy in Christ. This is the beginning of the prayer that we're looking at uh, over the last couple of weeks or so. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven, which is just the traditional way of, of praying at those days, in those days, and said, Father, the hour has come, um, this time, this critically important moment. The hour has come. Glorify your son. You'll pick up how important glory is. Glorify your son. The son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And the verse we looked at this last week, this this description of the extraordinary life that we can have, the eternal life that we can have now and then goes on forever after death. And this is, present tense, eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And now these two verses we're looking at this morning, verse 4. I glorified, again glory, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, mission accomplished, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, I want you to scan your eye down, if you will, to verse 22. And he picks up glory again in a very significant way. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. Well, this is God's word. You may go ahead and take a seat. Amen. In uh, 2008, the International Hockey Federation decided that a particular sporting moment was the most significant sporting moment of the last 100 years. It took place in 1980. And uh, it was when the Russians, then known as the Soviet Union, were playing the United States at the Olympics. And the Russian team had won five out of the last six um, Olympic 
gold medals, and so it was very certain they were going to win. What is more, the uh, American team, the United States team, had a, what was viewed as a very young, inexperienced, uh, unprofessional team, and it was extremely unlikely that they would win, let alone even score a goal or anything like that. But in, as it happened, at the end of the day, Actually, the Americans won four to three. It was an astonishing moment in sporting history, especially in hockey history. And it's particularly famous for the last um, phrase that the commentator that day, who became well known for this, said at the end. He said, as it was coming to the end, and the Americans were four three up, but it's clear they're going to win. He said, do you believe in miracles? And then, yes, you see, and then they won. It was glory of a sporting kind. Ever since that has been known as the miracle on ice to Hockey people, it's one of the most um, sort of significant moments that really put hockey in the center of the map in many ways in America, that moment, 1980. Now, we know what glory is like in sports. You know, it's the Stanley Cup. It's, uh, you know, the curse of the goats is ended, right? Glory. Um, The World Series won. We know what glory is like, but is it? Is it possible to have glory in our own lives? Here we are. You know, I, I'm unlikely to win the Stanley Cup. And, you know, is it possible for you to have glory in your own life? What is more? Is it the right thing to want? And what is more? Is that sporting glory of which we are so familiar and think is the be-all and end-all and everything, is that actually what glory is? Or is it at its best a mere pale imitation of the glory that Jesus is talking about here that he has given to us? And at its worst, a distraction from the real glory that you can have. Well, to answer those kind of questions, we need first of all to know what glory is. What is glory? Well, biblically, glory, the word glory, uh, in the Old Testament, New Testament, obviously different words used for it. The Old Testament word has a sense of heaviness, weight, substance. It's something weighty, substantial, not passing, but solid, that that idea of glory. Often the word glory uh, is used in the sense that it has a, a meaning of brilliance, of shining, of brightness. It has a sense of esteem. What other people think, and ultimately, of course, what God thinks. So we could put it like this. Glory, the glory of a thing, is that thing seen at its very best. And therefore, the glory of God is God, as it were, seen at his very best by all. Shining, substantial, brilliant. And what Jesus is saying here, when he uses glory, so often these first five verses, and they're packed in, and these these four and five, verses four and five, like slammed together over and over again, glory, glory, glory. What he's saying is that the accomplished mission of Jesus, the work that I've accomplished, is where there is this glory. And what that means is the following. I want to give to you this morning Three stunning trajectories that show how the accomplished mission of Jesus is the way that God is glorified in your life. Here they are. The the first one uh, goes like this. 
rely on the finished work of Jesus at the cross. And I'm getting this from verse 4. Rely on the finished work of Jesus at the cross. And you look down at verse 4, you'll notice that it's all in the past tense. I've glorified you for the work that I have accomplished. And Jesus here is using that to describe amazingly, stunningly, astonishingly, that which in terms of a timeline is yet still to occur. So he's praying before he's gone to the cross. He's not yet at the cross. And yet from Jesus' point of view, it's as good as done. It's accomplished. I've done it. What astonishing confidence. To have that in prayer, the work is accomplished. This is the work that he said earlier that he was yet still to do. He, he, he says earlier in John's gospel, my food is to do the work which you have asked me to accomplish. But now, on the very doorstep of the crucifixion, in Jesus' mind is as good as done. And by describing this way, he's, he's using a way of talking about the cross which is predominantly used as the cross is preached in the New Testament. So, for instance, the book of Hebrews, it says that his death was once for all. Once for all. It's done. Of course, that's why we have the Lord's table, to remind us it's done. His death was once for all. Uh, And uh, at the the cross itself, Jesus prayed and said, it is finished. And here before the cross, he's praying, it's accomplished. It's done. Now, the reason why that is so important for you to understand in terms of glory and your experience of glory and your experience of being in Christ and therefore sharing his glory, the glory that I have given to them, the reason why it's so important is because we tend to live in what you could call an honor-shame paradigm way of looking at life, an honor-shame. If we've done something honorable, we feel honorable and the people around us honor us. And if we don't have that, we feel shamed. You see that all the time these days with tech, tech stuff, you know, social media, all, all, all this, that, that the way we know whether we're honored is by what people are thinking about us online, how many likes or follows or whatever it is that we've got on our Instagram feed. Or, 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 and it's, it's an honor-shame way of looking at life. Am I being honored or am I being shamed? What do you do with that? Well, one way you do deal with that, which is what our culture tries to help us to get out of this trap. You know, I only had 50 likes and now I feel terrible about myself now. You know, The way to get out of that is to say, no, you've got to believe in yourself. It is, it, then the, the converse of this honor-shame trap is to say, it's all about me and it's about what I think about myself. The trouble with that is if you follow that to its logical extreme and if you do that in your own life, what will happen is in the end you'll just be lonely. Because it'd just be what you want. And the most lonely people on the face of the planet, the ones who follow that common doctrine, seen it time and time again. Their marriages fall apart, their children hate them. Because why? It's about them. It's all about them. And the reason why they want it to be all about them is they want to escape the honor-shame trap because they don't want to be living by other people's reputation or uh, having their reputation defined by other people's opinion. 
But there's a much better way. And that much better way is in the accomplished mission of Jesus and you're relying upon that. And when you rely upon that, it is done. It is his glory. His work is done. And instead of being an honor shame, it is a sin forgiven. Forgiven. He takes your sins, the Bible says, and he separates them as far as the east is from the west and he forgives them and mysteriously forgets them. And you're free. That's glory. So rely on the finished work of Christ at the cross first. This first of these three stunning trajectories that show us how the accomplished mission of Jesus is the way that God is glorified in your life. First, rely on the finished work of Christ at the cross. Second, rejoice. Not just rely, rejoice. And this is the beginning of verse 5, and it really is a theme that is throughout chapter 17. And it's not just rely, it's rejoice. When he says glorify, it's an amazing, just an, we, we just camp here for like you know, an hour at least. Think of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Father, glorify me. I mean, what an astonishing thing for a, a person to pray. Of course, the reason why he prays like that is because he is the Son of God. He's God himself. Father, glorify me. But what, what, is, what is in this, I'm not sure, what emphasizes what's so amazing about that is when he says glorify, it's actually the same, it's the same tense there as the glorify before. He's, it's with equal confidence. It's glorified me, Father. Why? Because he's talking about the vindication that will come, not just when he dies on the cross, but when he rises again and ascends to the Father and the vindication, the exalted vindication. In other words, Jesus is here affirming and developing and magnifying a theme here of triumph. Triumph. You know, we can... We can look, look at you know, communion, or we can look at the Christian life, or we can look at church, or we can look at our own lives in a slightly melancholic, slightly um, sad kind of way. You know, things are not what they used to be back in the day, though if you live back in the day, you probably thought that things were not what they used to be back in the day before that. But anyway, that's another, another conversation. And we, we live with this sense of, oh, things are honest. But here, Jesus is talking about, Father, glorified me. There's this, etern- this exalted vindication of Jesus. And if you're in him, Father, the glory I've given them. You're sharing in the eternal glory of God. You're in him. You're part of the body of Christ. So what, what, is that? It's a, what does that matter? It's a, it's a, complete, it's a complete game changer. Because you and I, today, in the way we're all running around trying to get a buzz, trying to get, like, live large, trying to make sure we checked off our bucket list of things we've got to do, trying to make sure that we're as happy as we can be, and it's one thing after another, and it's like a treadmill of experiences or excitements, and it doesn't satisfy, and it doesn't, it doesn't land anywhere, because what we've got is, you know, excitement requires a new exciting event. And then if you don't have a new exciting event, you're no longer excited. And, and, and happiness 
Happiness requires that you're living in a time or in your own circumstances or, or in your own schoolwork or your own job or, whatever, or your own home life. You're living where the circumstances around you happen to be good. Happiness is related to what is happening. But here comes joy. And it's rooted in this confident, exalted vindication of Christ and what he did in his accomplished mission, not just his death, but also his resurrection and ascension. You say, well, how do I know that even happened? You know that even happened because of all the eyewitnesses that, that spoke about Jesus' resurrection. You know that happened because of the New Testament. You know that happened because of people like Josephus and Tacitus and Teutonius and other ancient authors. You know that happened because of the, the trajectory of the history of the world that the, the early preachers of the gospel preached he is risen and people believed based on the fact that there were eyewitnesses knew he was risen and if if he hadn't been risen, they would have got the body out to show he wasn't risen, and it changed the world, and you, you know it happened because it is witnessed as a, an event in history, and you put your trust there. And then that work of Christ as risen, you know it's true because he gives you his spirit within, and you know him, and you behold the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, and you... you you have the risen power of Jesus in your life. And now you have something to rejoice about, whatever your circumstances, whatever you're feeling. You know, there are times when, as a Christian, you are going to feel sad. There's no way around it. But what you can tell yourself, even if you are feeling sad, is that there is an exalted vindication of Jesus that nothing and no one can ever take away from you and you are in him. And that is something to rejoice about. But here we come to the third of these trajectories. Not only rely and rejoice, rely on the finished work of Jesus at the cross and rejoice in the exalted vindication of the resurrection and the ascension. Not only that, but the third one, which is really most amazing, I think, and and frankly, mind-blowing that comes in the second part of this verse 5, where Jesus says this, and I don't know whether you noticed it, but it is just, when we read it out, but it is, as I say, just mind-blowing, astonishing. So he says, verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, here it goes, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here we are, treading on the verge of mystery. Now, you can't always say, every time you come across an idea in Christianity, that it's a mystery. Because if, if you say that, then everything's a mystery, and you're not using logic. And the Bible is logical too. Jesus is the logos. It is good to use logic. You can't say everything's a mystery. because that's. But here we are verging on the very nature of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if, 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 if one thing is a mystery, that certainly is a mystery. And if you're not sure you can believe in the Trinity because it seems illogical, let me ask you this. Is it logical to believe in a God that you can logically understand? Or is it more logical to believe in a God that blows your mind, that is beyond your comprehension? 
the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Something that no human could make up, but it could only be revealed. And so this third point here is to wonder, uh, wondrous, wonder, to wonder or W-O-N-D-E-R, wonder or worship. So it's not just rely or trust, it's not just rejoice, it's actually elevated above that, which is to wonder, worship, at what always glorifies God before the world existed and now forever. And what always glorifies God. And as I say, this is, if you can get this, what always glorifies God is the cross. That the glory that Jesus had before the world began and now has with the glory with, with God in glory now forever is most fully and most substantially expressed at the moment of crucifixion, death, and resurrection at the cross. And if you can get that, see, a lot of us. A lot of us have a small God theology. That is, we tend to think of God in a small kind of way. And the reason you think, well, I wouldn't want to do that, but the reason why that's attractive to do, and the reason why many people do, is because if you have a small God, he's your friend, he's your buddy, he can come alongside, he can make you feel comfortable, make you feel better. Plus, you don't have the same kind of intellectual problems that a big God has, if you have a big God that you would have. In other words, if he's only a small God, you don't have to worry about what he's doing about the hurricane in the Bahamas or the, 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 the travesty of, or the trauma in the, in the Middle East. You don't have to worry about that. He's only a small God. He makes you feel better. He's your private God. And so in reality, many of us have a small God theology. It makes me feel better. I don't have to worry about this other stuff. It's just the way it is. But the trouble with a small God theology is that if you've got a small God theology, as soon as something bad happens to you, you don't know what to do. Your God's not big enough for that. And so many of us then have a big God theology, which of course is much better to do. And our, our God is massive, huge, sovereign, majestic, and all, all, all this. And of course, that's wonderful and, and amazing. And, but if you only have a big God theology, then you'll have safety but not salvation. You'll have power but not passion. You'll have fate but not providence. He's just up there somewhere. But if your God is glorified at the cross, always, at the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete. Evil is defeated. Suffering made sweet. These hands, these nail-pierced hands. And if that's your God, 
than even when you're going through circumstances that are not happy, difficult things, whatever you're going through, whether you're on the mountains or in the valleys, you have a God who is worthy of worship throughout all and everything. You can wonder and worship at what always glorifies God. Even broken people like you and I? Of course, this is the great discovery that was gradually revealed throughout the Old Testament and then culminated in the New Testament we're seeing at the moment of the cross. I think it was D.L. Moody who said that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody, the next 40 years of his life realizing he was nobody, and the final 40 years of his life realizing what God can do with a nobody. Rely on the finished work. Rejoice on the, in the exalted vindication. And then above that, like it, it's transcendent. It's, it's worship. Not this little God, this massive God. Not this God has nothing to say about suffering, but this suffering Christ and what most glorifies God for always. You wonder and worship. I started with a sporting analogy to bring out the fact that we've got something so much bigger and better than mere sporting glory. Let me leave you with a a person who understood this. 1924, an Olympic sprinter called Eric Liddell went to the Olympic Games. He won gold medal. But in going at the 400 meters. He won the gold medal at 400 meters, though he had been training actually for another race. And the reason why he won the 400 meters is because he refused to run another time because it violated some of his Christian conscience principles. And he stood there running the 400 meters. And before he went to this race, another uh, competitor came up to him with a note that he'd written and handed it to Eric Little. And he read it before the race and it said, The old book says, he who honors me, I will honor. And he ran the race, and he got glory. But far more importantly, Eric Little went to be a missionary in China. And when he died in a concentration camp there in 1945, his saintly characteristics are recorded for us by other in, 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 uh, prisoners at the time. And in fact, there's a memorial stool to Eric Little right in that place. And of course, now, now he's experiencing the real fulfilled sweetness of real glory. Glorify in God at the cross. For then God is glorified in you. Our Lord God, we pray that you would help us to put aside other things that we do glory in. Things that of of themselves are fine and have a place and can be enjoyable and even entertaining. Things that uh, can be good gifts that you give to us as ways that we can serve you and honor you. We pray, Lord, that this morning you'd help us to see above all that into the very essence of who you are, always glorified at the cross.
and therefore rely on you, rejoice, and wonder in worship at our God with the scars on his hands as we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Lamb who sits on the very center of the throne, the Lamb who looks as if he has been slain, before whom we bow and worship this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.